My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. And welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Luke Stewart. The G7, also known at some periods of its existence as the G6 or the G8, was established as an element of global governance, particularly with respect to the economy, during the turbulent 1970s. In the face of both systemic instabilities and grassroots resistance around the world, it brought together the traditional imperial powers with the goal of re-establishing their dominance and that of their preferred capitalist ways of organizing the planet. By the late 1990s, efforts to establish alternatives had been beaten back in much of the global south with the imposition of neoliberalism, and the G20 was established to allow a handful of the largest and wealthiest countries from the rest of the world to have a seat at the table, though the smaller group continues to meet as well. Opposition to the G7 or G8 and to the G20 is a response, or really many different responses, to the injustices produced by the global order of which they are a part. Growing inequality, colonization, environmental destruction, corporate greed, white supremacy and anti-blackness, war and occupation, injustice towards migrants, and many other forms of exploitation and oppression mark the global capitalism that is pushed by the G8 and the G20 in the 21st century. So when Stephen Harper announced that the G8 summit in 2010 would be in Huntsville, Ontario, and the G20 would meet immediately after in Toronto, Many people with many different politics began organizing to express their opposition in the streets. One of those people was Luke Stewart. At the time, Stewart was living in Kitchener-Waterloo, Ontario. He and other activists in his community did lots of work in the lead-up to the summits to build both local awareness of the issues and local capacity to participate in the resistance. They also organized buses to bring people to and from Toronto for the actions. The plan in Toronto was to have a series of actions organized into themed days, each focused on a different area of struggle and culminating in larger protest events on the Saturday and Sunday when the G20 meetings were taking place. Of course, what has stuck most prominently in public memory about that G20 summit is the lockdown of parts of downtown Toronto enforced by a massive wall and the egregiously bad behavior by the police. That included the largest mass arrest in Canadian history and a whole host of other abuses by law enforcement on the streets and in detention facilities. As reported widely in the media in the years after, even an internal police review after the fact agreed that there was widespread use of excessive force, overstepping of police authority, illegal arrests, and more, while a representative of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association was more blunt, characterizing it as, quote, rights violations on a massive scale, end quote. One of Stewart's pivotal experiences in that week happened on the Friday. He was preparing to enter a public park that was being used as a staging area by demonstrators. 
The police were blocking people from entering the park unless they submitted to a search of all of their belongings, and they were seizing items like protest signs, flagpoles, bike gloves, and swimming goggles. Stewart had been very involved in organizing Know Your Rights workshops before the summit, and he understood these actions to be beyond the powers of the police. Moreover, he saw it as one element of the ongoing criminalization of dissent, so he asserted his rights and refused to cooperate. Though he was not arrested or detained at that point, his bag was searched without his consent and his goggles were taken. Though he was also part of a mass arrest that took place later in the weekend, it was this interaction at the park that became the focus of his lawsuit against the Toronto police. Stewart and lawyer Davin Charney initiated the lawsuit back in 2011, but due to relentless delaying tactics by the police, the trial did not take place until early 2018. And in July 2018, the judge ruled in favor of the police. Stewart and Charney are appealing that ruling. It has been a long and difficult journey, but Stewart is continuing the fight because he sees such lawsuits as one mechanism among the many that we must use to challenge abusive behaviors by the police and the criminalization of dissent. Victories in the courtroom do not replace victories on the streets, but they can contribute to the conditions that help make victories on the streets more possible. Currently, Stewart is crowdfunding via GoFundMe.com to pay the costs associated with his appeal. I speak with Stewart about the G8 and G20, about his experiences protesting them in Toronto in 2010, and about his lawsuit. My name is Luke Stewart. I was born in Brantford, Ontario. I have since moved to France, where I live with my family. I finished my PhD at the University of Waterloo in 2014, studying the Nuremberg Principles of 1950 and their use by draft resistors and military resistors during the Vietnam War. Since moving to France, I've held various jobs. Right now, I currently work at a university. I teach international relations. The G6 was founded officially in 1975. And the G6, which became the G7, are really the traditional imperial powers. The United States, Great Britain, Italy, Germany, Japan, Canada, and France. In 1975, many different things were happening with the crisis in the economy, in the traditional imperial powers, with the rise and creation of OPEC, the oil cartel, and also with more and more power being assembled at the United Nations by non-aligned countries in the Cold War, the traditional imperial powers decided to group together as first the G6 and the G7. And the goal was essentially to shore up the capitalist countries in the face of all of these challenges. After the collapse of the communist regime in Russia, Russia was then added to the G7 to become the G8. Now, the G20 was formed in 1999 as a way, I guess, to better encircle the rest of the world, ensure that everyone is better coordinating the global economy, which in and of itself is not a bad thing. However, most of these countries who were added are countries like Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Brazil, South Africa. These countries are not pursuing a different global agenda than the current global capitalist system. And so they hold periodic meetings and they go to different member countries. In 2010, it was Canada's turn. Stephen Harper's government at the time decided that the G20 would be held in Toronto and the G8 would be held in Huntsville, Ontario. 
The main criticisms of these institutions, the G8 in particular, is that for one thing, all of these powers in one way or another are responsible for ensuring the current economic system, which sees tremendous amounts of wealth being held in fewer and fewer hands. And we can just name off a few examples. The United States, for example, invading Iraq in 2003 and not really being held accountable for that. Canadian mining companies committing different human rights abuses around the world. The failure of the G8 and the G20 also to come to grips with the ongoing environmental catastrophe, the climate catastrophe. Also different things in terms of migrant justice, in terms of wars and occupation, the maintenance of a global system which is patriarchal in nature, as well as with the G8 and G20 being held in Canada, highlighting the attack on Indigenous sovereignty. So those are some of the reasons why people went into the streets. What kind of organizing were you involved with in the lead-up to the summits? So in the lead-up, I was living in Kitchener-Waterloo, There was a group in Toronto, the Toronto Community Mobilization Network, a coalition of groups in Toronto, which took on different aspects of organizing the protests. There was really different groups and initiatives that sprung up across Ontario in different provinces. In Kitchener-Waterloo, myself and some other local activists decided that we should do something as well. And so we organized the Kitchener-Waterloo People's Summit. This really came out of a need for some kind of educational program platform to spread the word out about what was coming to Toronto and Huntsville and why people around the world are upset at these global institutions. And so we decided to put on a two-month-long initiative where we organized, as I said, Know Your Rights workshops, direct action workshops, organizing different events, organizing documentary screenings. One of the most important things that we did was securing funding to get buses in order to go to and from Kitchener-Waterloo each day of the summit. And so we really tried to educate people about what the G8 and G20 are, and we tried to show them different ways that they could become involved if they wanted to. So that's really what I was doing at the end of April, May, and all the way up leading to the event, which began in late June 2010. And describe your experiences during the week of actions in Toronto. I came on the Sunday night. The protests themselves began on the Monday, and there were different themed days of resistance from the Monday up to the Friday when the G8 started on June 25th, and then the weekend, the 26th, 27th. You could just feel the city of Toronto was different. I actually walked up along and I could touch the security fence that they had strewn around the downtown core in order to protect the world leaders who were coming. And so immediately I felt the real almost negative atmosphere. The week of different theme days of resistance saw a tremendous outpouring of community organizing and mobilization from different groups all around Canada. I got to meet a whole bunch of people from all around the country At the same time, there was real heavy militarized police presence. There was also a festive atmosphere in the city of Toronto. Nearing the end of the week, things started to get a little more intense. At the environmental theme day, the police started to try to take people's flagpoles and placard sticks, for example, which I thought that was pretty strange. 
different stories about people being stopped on bikes. For example, this didn't happen to me, but I know many people stop on bikes for not having a bike light, for example, and getting a ticket. But really on the Friday, the Justice for Our Communities Day, that's when things really stepped up. That's the day, June 25th, when the police had surrounded Allen Gardens Park. The plan was to rally at Allen Gardens and then try to march to the fence. So I got to the park, the northwest corner of the park. The first thing I saw was a big group of people and a line of police. I had been to numerous Know Your Rights workshops in the lead up to this. I had read different things. And one of the things that we learned is that you don't have to consent to a search and that the police can't search you unless you've been arrested or detained. And so the first thing I saw was the police had surrounded the park and they were searching people's bags and taking people's flagpoles. They made search of everyone's belongings a condition of entry into the park. I was taken aback by this. I was shocked. And so I decided to avoid that the opening of the park in the northwest. I walked a little bit further into the center of the park and I tried to enter the park. The police approached me, pushed me back and said they needed to look into my bag. I refused. Unbeknownst to me, a videographer, a journalist started filming about a minute into this interaction with the police. And so there's a video of this event. I just kept maintaining the line that we were told, you know, I kept asking, am I being detained? Am I being arrested? And I kept asking under what authority the police had to search my bag in a public park. I was just trying to go to a demonstration. By this point, there were three police officers. The police informed me that they were using the Trespass to Property Act. And I still maintained that even if it's the Trespass to Property Act, I had to be arrested or detained for my bag to be searched. And so this went on. We kept going back and forth. They didn't tell me I was detained or arrested. And so I decided to walk through the police line, at which point they grabbed me, took my bag off me, searched my bag. I wasn't aware of it until somebody in the crowd says, is there a reason why you're taking his swimming goggles? I had swimming goggles in my bag. And you can see on the video that I say, you're taking my goggles so I can't protect myself when you use chemical weapons, when you use tear gas. They took my goggles. I ended up getting let into the park and I demonstrated. I have subsequently learned through my trial, seeing different pictures, not only were they searching bags, they were searching purses, they were searching baby strollers, they were searching wheelchairs, they were searching coolers. And they were seizing flagpoles. They were seizing sticks for protest signs. They seized bike gloves. They seized drumsticks. We were encouraged to file OIPRD, so that's the Office of Independent Police Review Director, complaint about anything that happened to us at the G20, other things that happened to me. For example, the next day, I was kettled outside of the Eastern Ave Detention Center, and I spent about 18 or 20 hours in that detention center in which I witnessed all different kinds of things. This is one of the complaints. It seemed like what had happened. Uh, and I think here, he's referring specifically to the incident getting into Allen Gardens Park. was a violation of Section 2 of the Charter, Freedom of Assembly, Seemed like a definite violation of Section 8 of the Charter, freedom from unlawful search and seizure. And it seemed like a violation of Section 9 of the Charter, freedom from arbitrary detention or imprisonment. My eventual lawyer, Davin Charney, agreed, and we filed a lawsuit. 
asking for the court to look at this under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but also make a declaration of law that the police cannot surround a public park and that the police cannot make search a condition of entry into a park and then the seizure of what otherwise would be lawful items. So on the one hand, it's pretty clear that there were lots of things about police behavior in that week that a lot of different people found really troubling, even far beyond radical circles. But on the other hand, the terrain of struggle that you enter into when you're launching a lawsuit doesn't tend to be one that's particularly favorable to movements. So talk in more detail about why you thought it was strategically and politically important to take the struggle into that terrain, into the courts. My lawyer, this is what he does. He defends people against the police and he also launches lawsuits against the police who violate people's rights or assault people. So the first reason was I had a lawyer who I trusted and who this is what he does for his career. The second reason is because the violations were so flagrant at the G8 and G20, it seemed like there needed to be some kind of a response in the courts. We can debate if movements can find justice in the courts, but it seemed strategically like the right thing to do, given that many Canadians identify with the Charter. And it seems like if the police have the right to surround a park and search everybody before they come into the park and then also seize items, we're not talking about guns or knives. We're talking about swimming goggles, bike gloves, flagpoles. It seems like this is the definition of the criminalization of dissent. And if the police can do this, we're not talking about the freedom of speech here. We're talking about, I think, what are even more core fundamental rights. That is the right to be free from unlawful detention or arrest. The right to be free from unlawful search and seizure. These, to me, are even more what define some of the lines drawn between a democracy and a dictatorship. The right to go to a protest without having your bag opened up. And so it seemed like this was the right issue because it potentially affects everybody at any time, whether they want to go to a demonstration or not. And it's not just massive summit demonstrations. It's if you want to protest local environmental injustice or if you want to do basically anything. The police should not have the right to simply say, I want to look in your bag. I learned also that the Trespass to Property Act, for example, has no search power. So under the act itself, the police have no right to search somebody's belongings. The police have their statutory powers for arresting and searching somebody, but they also have their common law powers. And under common law, they have the right for investigative detention. But under that investigative detention power, there has to be a crime ongoing. There has to be a crime which is already taking place. And that person, in order to be detained and searched, needs to be implicated in that crime. So in other words, just going to a protest at Allen Gardens where there was no crime going on seems to be the definition of making dissent a crime. And I know that politically minded people are thinking, you know, this happens every day in Canada on the streets to marginalized and poor communities, racialized communities with carding and street checks. And I agree 100% with that. And that's what I've said since day one, that this happens every day on the streets of Canada. And that's one of the reasons why we need to fight against it. And the courts is just one avenue. Give listeners a sense of the key features of your experience of the court process. 
I launched the lawsuit first in small claims court because that's where my lawyer did most of his litigating. But after I received the OIPRD report in January 2012, which found that the police in my case actually did engage in discreditable conduct and unlawful use of authority, when we got this 30-page report, we decided to move it to the Ontario Superior Court of Justice. That just seemed to give me the backing I needed to continue and actually move to the next stage of the court system. And basically, the whole rest of the story from 2011 until 2018 can be summed up by the legal team for the police basically fighting us at every turn. So when we wanted to go to Superior Court, what would otherwise have been a normal procedure, they fought that. And so what normally might have been a few-month process, the police fought us on procedural grounds. So it took us well over a year until October 2013 when the lawsuit was finally able to go to Superior Court. There were a series of other steps along the way, discoveries, and then you had the mediation process and then the pretrial hearing. By that time, I had moved to France and my daughter was born in 2016. So I had looked at the rules and it seemed to me for both the mediation and the pretrial, I could have made a case that because of my daughter and because of the financial burden, we could do both of those procedures via video conference or telephone. And the police said, no, you can't do that, which extended the process even more. So the trial ended up taking place in February 2018. Without all of the back and forth, the trial probably could have happened in 2015 or 2016. And I think it's a deliberate tactic it's an expensive process. So it's a way to bleed the plaintiff of resources. And also the police had refused to release certain evidence through the discoveries process. So that whole process was really extended to the point where it was no longer possible to do it any longer. It can burn you out. And then at the mediation process, you're basically told that if you don't settle, if you go on with the lawsuit and you lose, if there's any cost award, we're going to come after you. If you can't pay the cost award, we're going to try to put you in jail. These are the threats. Essentially, we're going to ruin your life. And what happened at trial? So at trial in February, it was a seven-day trial. I was on the witness stand for a day. We had two witnesses combined taking two days. And then we had four police officers on the stand. And so the lawyers for the police tried to say that I'm a selfish person. I didn't care about other people's safety. For example, one of the police officers on the stand said that it was clear that this was a setup, that I was just trying to get publicity. And, you know, we made the arguments that I've essentially made. And the police made the argument that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is not absolute that the police needed to do this because this was a unique event, that there was a history of violence at G and G20 protests. That's why they needed to surround the park and make search a condition of entry. And so over those seven days, we made our arguments, they made theirs. And in July 2018, the judge basically agreed with everything that the police said on the witness stand and agreed with everything the counsel for the police said and made the decision that the police could use the Trespass to Property Act in this manner. And more than that, I was detained under the common law power of investigative detention and that my charter rights were not violated that the police were duty-bound to surround the park and make search a condition of entry, and that the seizing of my goggles, the police were justified in doing that. 
there's no justification made in the decision other than that it was necessary because my swimming goggles could defeat police tactics, in this case could defeat the use of tear gas. And in fact, near the very end of the decision, the judge says, the seizure of the goggles is a trifling matter and not sufficiently material to require a charter analysis. So that pretty much sums up the tenor of the decision. This is all trifling. The police are completely justified in doing what they're doing. We disagree wholeheartedly. There's no search power under the Trespass to Property Act. And under the common law power that the judge uses for investigative detention, there was no crime ongoing unless going to a protest is a crime. And the search we maintain was unreasonable because the search is connected to the detention and the seizure is connected to the police looking in my backpack. And that's not what the Trespass Property Act allows. And that's not what the police common law powers allow. So in the face of that loss in July, what are your next steps? So we lost the lawsuit and the judge awarded the police $25,000 in costs. And so because we're appealing that, thankfully, the cost decision is on hold. Right now, we filed the notice of appeal. It's not clear to me, but we have to order the trial transcripts in order to provide those transcripts to the appeals court. What's not clear to me is the cost of those. The fees for making the appeal, just to launch the appeal, and then the cost of the transcripts could be $8,000. And so just to do that, I need to raise money. So I've launched a GoFundMe campaign to raise money for the fees for launching the appeal and the court transcript fees. And then after those transcripts, my lawyer has to do what's called perfect the case, which means he needs to write a factum, make a book of authorities and all that kind of stuff. And then once that's all submitted, it should be another six months. Presumably, once this is submitted, we could have a possible decision by the Court of Appeal by next summer. So I know that what happened at the G8 and G20 was eight years ago, but it seems to me that if we want to continue to live in a democratic society where there's some balance between the state and the ordinary person, we can't cede ground on two aspects. We can't allow the police or the government to infringe on our civil liberties based on intelligence that they say they have, that there's going to be violence. And then many years down the road at a trial, they don't have to produce that intelligence. If the police can do that, then they can get away with anything. And that's what this decision essentially suggests. The judge relies on the police just simply saying that we had intelligence, there was going to be violence. One of the healthiest things to come out of the G20 is renewed skepticism in police conduct and not just believing the pronouncements of the police. Secondly, we cannot give up the right of freedom from unlawful detention, arrest, search and seizure. If we cede that territory, if we let the police unlawfully detain us and arrest us, search our belongings, then we're entering a very slippery slope towards a police state, towards the criminalizing of dissent. And we want to make sure that we are creating environments for people to demonstrate, to show that they're unhappy with what's going on, whether it's the Ford government in Ontario, whether it's the ongoing climate crisis, whether it's wars and occupation, whether it's for Indigenous sovereignty, we have to be able to ensure that as many people can come out of their homes as possible and feel like they can participate without being scared away by the police and the militarization of police. You have been listening to my interview with Luke Stewart. 
To learn more about his lawsuit against the Toronto police and to donate towards his appeal, search for Luke Stewart G20 Trial on GoFundMe.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to TalkingRadical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.